0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. William, my boy. Where the hell have you been? It's good to see you again, Jim. Thank fuck for that. Most potent thing, these cretins will give me is great fridges. juice. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's a little early for me A little fucking late, you mean Besides, if you aim to cheat the devil You want an offering? Hello everyone and welcome to Decoding Westworld A recap podcast about the HBO original series Westworld I'm David Chen
1: I'm Joanna Robinson.
0: Welcome to the podcast. What we do here is we recap and theorize and speculate about every single episode of Westworld, but we don't spoil anything from future episodes, and that includes anything from the next time on previews that HBO sometimes shows. Uh, You can find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. You can also email us at decodingwestworld at gmail.com. John Robinson, what we like to do every week at the top of the show is we like to look over some of the emails that came in from listeners who, who can write into DecodingWestworld at gmail.com. A lot of responses last week uh, to what we discussed uh, about Season 2, Episode 3, specifically about our comments on love. A lot of, uh, a lot of big fans of your interstellar uh, performance, You know your uh. rendition of the monologue about love from uh, the Nolan's Interstellar. Um, so, you know, a lot of praise is what I'm trying to say for that. So, so good job on that.
1: Are you um, saying Anna, Anne
0: Hathaway owes me her Oscar? Like
1: she should just ship her Oscar to me?
0: Uh, that's, that's exactly what I'm trying to say, but not great. in that many words. Okay, great, <laughs> um, great, great. Uh, and, uh, we also got this email from John G, coincidentally, John G, for, for those who are Nolan's fans, um who writes into to DecodingWestworld at gmail.com, quote, I was listening to your latest podcast, and I think your interpretation of what the show is saying about love is incorrect. It's not saying that love is a powerful force that transcends living or artificial life, but it's saying the opposite. Love is a biochemical response that has evolved. Humans are just as programmed as hosts, there is no difference between Maeve's love for a programmed daughter and your love for your own daughter. It's not that love is some pre-existing force that you're tapped into, but that you're just as programmed to love a child by evolution and biology as Maeve is programmed to love her child. The same is true for Dolores and her father. It's the same thing the show is saying about consciousness and everything else that might be used to justify the enslavement of this new life form. Nothing separates them from us, but our own bias that we are somehow special and more important. Everything you do is also coded. You are on your own loops. You can can make choices but there are many choices you never seem to make end quote uh so john goes on a little bit but that's that's the main thrust of it uh and i thought i found that email to be really persuasive joanna what did you think
1: yeah i mean i think it's certainly a theme that the show is interested in pursuing which is getting really down to the bone of what is the difference between Human and artificial intelligence, um biological programming, and you know, more traditional coding, et cetera, et cetera. so i'm I'm curious to see sort of what direction the season takes us in on, on that particular question
0: yeah, and and essentially, it's saying like, A lot of the show seems to be saying that there's not that much difference. You know, Ford stated it in the first season about how humans are on our own loops in in many ways. Uh, And the fact that we're not aware of them or not aware of our constraints does not make them any less of a loop than what the hosts are on. Um, So I I do find it fascinating to consider and explore. And I I think both interpretations are valid, to be honest with you. This idea that like there's something about love that transcends humanity in some way, I think is is an interesting way of looking at it. But also how the email put it, uh, the emailer put it, of saying that no, actually it's all just it's all just fake. It's all fake biochemical reactions that can be simulated, and the simulation is the same as the real thing. Um, maybe it depends on whether you're a cynic or not, and and how you view uh, that that affects how you view uh, the themes of this show. But in any case. Uh, keep those emails coming into decodingwestworld at gmail.com. Jenna Robinson, we had a couple other emails here, right? Uh, an email from Norma from Texas. This right? is
1: our most important email of the week. Yeah, it's, okay. it's
0: like the highest priority question we need to answer, right? Mm-hmm. Which is in the past, we have talked about how we rank Hemsworth's is. Hemsworth's Ev's
1: Hemsworth. That were Were
0: the, 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 the Hemsworth eyes?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and what rank uh, you know Stubbs is as a Hemsworth, mm-hmm. um, but Norma asks us to actually consider Gustav Skarsgård, A.K.A. Carl Strand, uh, yeah. and, and consider what Skarsgård brother rank does he get? Right. You know, like there are a lot of Skarsgård's working in in Hollywood, and so. Gustav Skarsgård, how do you think this guy stacks up?
1: Okay, so here's what I think. And We should should point
0: out, by the way, that his brothers are Alexander Skarsgård and Bill Bill Skarsgård. So Bill Skarsgård played the clown from It. Alexander Skarsgård played the abusive husband in uh, Big Little Lies.
1: Vampire Uh, Eric, yeah. And Vampire Uh, Eric, yep. uh, And then there's Walter Skarsgård. Um, who is been in a bunch of Swedish stuff and nothing that I've seen. Uh, so we'll call him. I mean, there's eight kids, and I think some of them are models. Anyway, there's a lot of Scars and they all stem from Stellan Skarsgars, mm. right? Uh, who uh, what is his Marvel character Doctor Eric Zolving? Is that right? Yeah, Sel-
0: like that. Selvig. Selvig.
1: Uh huh. I mean, I first knew him and from Goodwill Hunting. Anyway, do we do we? The question is, do we? include Stellan in the ranking? Or is it just the siblings?
0: I, I think you got to go with siblings. It should be the same generation, in my opinion.
1: Okay. All right. Then it is clearly Alex, Bill, Gustav, Walter, who I've literally never seen in anything.
0: Really? So you think Bill outranks Gustav?
1: I mean, he, pre-Pennywise, maybe I wouldn't be able to say. But I... um Yeah. His Pennywise is so good. I never saw... Bill is apparently really, really good in Helmlock Grove, but I never saw it. But he was so good as Pennywise, right? Like,
0: come on. He was very good as Pennywise. I think another issue is that uh, that Strand has just been completely useless this season so far, you know? So that kind of also impacts Gustav Skarsgård's ranking, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like,
1: No, people – like. People, like, please don't yell at us Vikings fans. He, Gustav was on Vikings. I never watched Vikings, so I don't have that, like, to enrich my rankings. Mm. But I know people really liked him on that show. So. It's true.
0: Okay, no, fair point, fair point. Don't want to discard the Viking fans. Um, but I, I, they are legion.
1: They are legion. They are legion.
0: I agree with your ranking. I think that's okay. – I think Alex – I mean, I, we can all agree that Alex is definitely number one, right?
1: Yeah. Clearly. Yeah.
0: No No he's, question. No. He's
1: question. the alpha Scar. Yes.
0: <laughs> he's the alpha and the Alexander Skarsgård. So – yeah okay uh well thanks to norma from texas for writing in with that question to decodingwestworld gmail.com we also got a bunch of questions this week about continuity of consciousness um and about you know basically this show is getting at what is the definition of consciousness and, and personhood in many ways uh timothy danford wrote in with this email who writes in he writes in it's been years since i've read some of this stuff but um uh, he, you know, Timothy talks about the work of philosopher Derek Parfit uh, and one of his thought experience, uh, experiments, the teletransportation thought experiment, which actually has a Wikipedia page. Imagine a machine that can make a perfect copy of someone's conscious state at a single instant. And we use it to build a teleporter to Mars. You step into the machine, it copies your consciousness, and it transmits it digitally to Mars, where an exact copy, uh, loaded with your consciousness, opens the door and steps out onto the Martian soil. Of course, we can't have two copies of you running around, so the copy here uh, is immediately terminated. Would you personally take a trip to Mars this way? What I think the thought experiment is telling us is something not about our idea of consciousness or the physical nature of the brain, but what identity means, what it means to be the same person. Now to Westworld. It's clear that the language of copying is all over Westworld since season one. The hosts are copied between bodies, rolled back, updated, etc. They are quite literally code, and so the humans have no problems talking about copying or combining personalities across bodies. But now in season in episode four, it seems like they've opened the door to copying of humans even more explicitly. When Jim Delos asks William what they're testing for, William says fidelity, a word we generally associate with the quality of a copy – What's more, in this episode, Season 2, Episode 4, this is the 149th copy of Jim. I'm not attaching any significance to the number. I'm just pointing out that this process of transferring consciousness into a host has the quality of a copy, i.e. it's not destructive of the original. There's some baseline Delos template that they're using to instantiate each physical version of the Delos bot. Uh, Well, I'll I'll just wrap up the email there, but... You know, a question for you, Joanna. If you could step into a machine and a version of your conscious state was replicated somewhere else but your self was immediately destroyed, would you take a trip to Mars or, or, or another desirable place in that way? Yes. Really?
1: Yeah, because I think I don't necessarily understand the difference.
0: Hmm. You
1: know what I mean? Yeah. A version um, of me would exist and go on at exactly the point where I left off. Um, so yeah, I would do it
0: so uh, this also this teletransportation experiment basically describes how transporters in the Star Trek series work, and that's why there's actually like some people have a phobia of using transporters because they're they're basically worried that they are being their their self is being exterminated right in in that right. process um and uh, uh, no, I, without spoiling too much i'll say another nolan film deals with this issue in a really potent way as well uh and yeah there, there's a lot of um
1: th- i'm glad you said that because i was just about to say which one <laughs> yeah. so i guess i guess we won't say which
0: one uh yeah i guess not <laughs> um and yeah there's a lot of like speculation about what is it that constitutes uh, Consciousness You know I, I read a great piece About this at Waitbutwhy.com I don't know if you uh, Like that site by Tim Urban But um, Basically there's a There's an article there Called What makes you you uh, And so it goes through All these theories About like what What is it that makes you Joanna Robinson What is it that makes me David Chen uh, right. And there's like The body theory Like it's your body That makes you you Or is it the brain theory Is it like your brain And if you put your brain In another body That would still be you You know what I mean And so on and so forth Like there's all these Like different um, theories it goes through including this teleportation uh, experiment uh, and yeah th- basically the, the, the sum of it the, at least my uh, my takeaway is that there's no widely accepted definition of what makes you you right there's no widely idea that like this is the thing that makes you you struggling to understand it so I like that the show is tackling it in a really uh, bold way especially in this episode any other thoughts on this before we move on Jana?
1: Um, no, I might circle back on it a little bit later on. Okay, but, yeah. so we'll come
0: back to this continuity of consciousness. Thanks for all the people who wrote into us at DecodingWestworld at gmail.com. Let's get into this episode of the show, season two, episode four, The Riddle of the Sphinx. This is uh, written by Gina Atwater, directed by Lisa Joy. It's her directorial debut, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And let me just put this out there, Joanna, right up top. I mean, this was not necessarily my favorite episode of Westworld, but this is, uh, I think, it, uh, an incredibly strong Uh, debut in terms of direction i I thought this is probably the best directed episode of season two so far in my opinion uh what what did you think of the overall direction did you did you notice the direction did you feel like oh this was clearly the work of of a rookie like what were your thoughts
1: no i thought it was so stylish and i really loved this episode and it's definitely my favorite of season two and i can't think of one from season two season one that i liked better as a contained episode you know, like season one is sort of maybe just with time, but it's just blurred together for me, yeah, but this will stand out to me as like the Jim Delos episode, and the way in which it's done is so I think masterful
0: yeah, it is so uh, strong, like in terms of how like the visuals help to communicate the themes and uh memorable shots, memorable edits like there's just a lot to to sink your teeth into here so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think some people were a little um, irritated by the length of the episode. I think it's like 71 minutes or something like that. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion recently among TV critics about um, (laughs) – there's this great piece. I think it's on Vulture. I want to say it's by Catherine Andrick, I think. But it's uh, like – long running times on TV shows or, or like the man spreading of TV a peak TV or something like that and it's like I used to feel this way about Sons of Anarchy because Kurt Sutter could just like make an 80 minute episode and FX would be like oh, okay um, and so I do agree that I kind of like it if if uh, a sh- an episode is a little bit more restraint I didn't really feel the sag in this episode though if I were to snip one storyline out I do know which one it would have been and like put it in a different episode but um, I thought all the Jim Dell this stuff was so super strong, um, in a way that just made me really happy. The moment the episode started, I just like got excited about it. So yeah, uh,
0: I thought it was pretty uh pretty bold. Like we don't see any Dolores in this episode. Am I right about that?
1: Yeah, and and like people are going to mad at me again, but that might be one of the reasons why I like this episode so much.
0: <laughs> we uh, it's also like they ended last episode on a cliffhanger. And we don't see any of Maeve this episode either. So I right. thought it was just like, wow, right. like pretty bold to um, kind of leave us in the way you left us in season two, episode three, and then just come out with with uh, this episode just completely uh, not having those characters in it. So, uh, okay, let's start. So the episode's titled The Riddle of the Sphinx. Uh, Joanna, what is The Riddle of the Sphinx? Uh, the Riddle of the
1: Sphinx is... Uh, You know, a mythological thing about, you know, the famous riddle of what crawls on four legs in the morning, walks on two legs in the afternoon and on three legs in the evening. I think that's how Mm. it goes. And the answer is a Man uh because it's a baby a man and then like a man with a cane or something like that. I see. And um that you know it's the riddle of the sphinx is something according to mythology that serves and and then if you got it wrong the sphinx would devour you. Mm. And so it's it's a it's a riddle that that stumped people in this, you know, particular mythology forever um until someone came by and solved it. And so the answer to the riddle of the sphinx is man. So what makes a man is I think the question that right. This episode is posing,
0: right? right? Right. Um, you know, what, Jenna, I'm going to call uh an audible here. Can we oh. can we do the last two plot lines first, and then the first two plot? Yeah, lines yeah. Last? As I as I said, do it whenever yeah, we want. So let's start with uh, let's start with Man in Black stuff. Um, and kind of the the modern day uh, Man in Black stuff. Uh, so. We see Lawrence and Bill, uh the riding down uh, on this railroad, and it, it, some of my ancestors were there, Joanna, some Chinese laborers <laughs> building mm-hmm. this uh, uh, railroad, but they are uh, like using people as the uh, kind of base of the, the railroad track?
1: The, the ties, yeah. yeah. The railroad ties, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, and I'll be honest, to this moment as we're recording this, I still didn't understand what was going on there. Like, what was your interpretation of that?
1: My interpretation of that is that this uh, this season deals so much with the oppressed rising up against their oppressors, and I don't think those were humans.
0: Yeah, I don't think On, so on
1: the railroad, I think they were hosts, but I think they were probably like white hosts that abused these Chinese laborers. Mm. So I think they're like the white, you know, railroad barons or, or you know. Camp masters or whatever, and they're using them to relay the the track elsewhere. So I think you know, if they were humans, I think that uh, Bill would have reacted a bit differently. But if they're hosts, then it's just you know, um, yeah, an oppressed minority sort of rising up against their oppressors. I would say.
0: Yeah, uh, I also think that the oppressed, like humans, would have behaved differently. They probably wouldn't have been as sedate when they got their heads nailed in because uh, I thought they were fairly complacent from my from my perspective. Like I feel like humans would have been free like when we've seen humans in captivity in this season, they've been freaking out at all times. So uh that was my interpretation was that they're hosts as well.
1: Uh, uh in our in our live stream chat room, Neuron, I please forgive me if I mispronounce your name, uh says that according to Lisa Joy, it's both hosts and guests. They say they believe. So uh that's pretty – but but maybe it shouldn't be more horrifying. Maybe I shouldn't draw such like a complete line between <laughs> human uh, guests and hosts or whatever.
0: But Oh, you know, I did also like this email uh, from James who wrote into DecodingWestworld at gmail.com. He wrote, in George Orwell's Animal Farm, the animals take over the farm from their oppressive human overlords. As the story progressed, the animals behave more and more like their oppressive human counterparts. They become more authoritarian, more paranoid, and they start eating human food. If this is a thematic element of this season, look for Dolores to become more paranoid, oppressive, and accusing fellow hosts of being traitors to other hosts. She is similar to the character of Napoleon. End quote. I thought that was an interesting idea that like, that Dolores', Dolores arc may see her basically becoming the oppressor in some way, right? Um, feels like she's headed that way.
1: Any yeah. thoughts on that? Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's... That's a possibility, and I think it's sort of what Mae was cautioning against. Yeah, last season, exactly, or, or last yeah. episode, or whatever. Yeah. yeah, two episodes ago.
0: Um, so anyway, uh, Lawrence and Bill have to go through Las Mudas, which is th- the same place that they were at at season one, um, and they're quickly surrounded by Confederados with Craddock, who Teddy let go of at the end of last episode, right? Right. Um, so he release Craddock. Craddock comes here, and uh, they they round all the people up in this church. Uh, along with Lawrence and, and Lawrence's family, and this is like a kind of cartoonish scene where Craddock's like, "Okay, who can speak on behalf of the townspeople?" And then he just shoots the guy. I, like, I, I had a feeling that was coming because the, the person who raised his hand, I'm like, I don't recognize who that is as an actor, and I don't think they're going to be have a major role. And then he seemed to com- Craddock seemed to confirm that when he shot him moments later. Uh, a little bit theatrical, a little bit extra. You know, I don't know if that was all necessary, uh, but. Then the man in black, you know, uh, has this gambit where he tells them where the weapons are located but says, I'm the one that's going to help you find uh, where you're trying to go, glory or where, whatever other people call it. Um, so before we move on to like how this, this storyline concludes, do you have any thoughts on this church scene which takes quite a while in the episode?
1: Um. Well, I'll just say that I continue to really uh, enjoy – This is kind of exactly what I wanted from the actor Jonathan Tucker when he was cast in this um, season because he does theatricality so well and so you know I, I talked to him for this other Westworld podcast that I do and he he said that when he was asked to audition he's like oh don't make me a tech I don't want to be like <laughs> in the control I want to be in the park I want to be doing something like
0: he wants kinda... to be in the shit as yeah
1: and he wanted to do something kind of big and that's you know because that's I think that's what you hired this guy for and that's what he's sort of doing here so yeah it is like a little cartoonish but like I, I think that's exactly what you hire this guy for and I think what Lisa Joy has said and, and I think What the episode bears out is that he serves as a sort of dark mirror for the man in black because the last time the man in black was here, he was the one sort of tormenting these, um, the the residents of Las Mudas, and so, um, he's watching this other guy do some of the exact same shots of what he did when he was in town, so it's this exaggerated villainous version of himself, um, and I thought that was interesting,
0: yeah, uh, so. Conti- Craddock continues to torment all the members of the town, including Lawrence. Uh, he uses nitroglycerin to explode the bartender's arm. Um, and then like later at night, it, w- it wasn't super clear to me why they were still there. Uh, e- even the man in black was getting frustrated that they're wasting time. Like, did you understand why Craddock was sticking around and tormenting everyone?
1: Um, I don't know if they were like waiting to load up the weapon somewhere. I don't. I don't know the answer to that.
0: No. Yeah, it just it's it seemed like uh, he was. I, I wonder if it had to do with like Craddock's monologue about death, and like he he wanted death to speak to him in some way or something like that. Anyway, I, I thought it was a little bit vague. His. His feelings but then uh william gets pretty fed up with the current situation and I, I, it's meant to be ambiguous i think why he does what he does but he basically kills all the oppressors all the confederados rescues lawrence uh, and his family and then uses the nitroglycerin to explode credit uh, and i think there's two things worth highlighting about this scene right one is that uh as we learned last episode, there is this kind of mode that the hosts can, can come back for. Like, they, they are programmed to die when they're shot, but that part can be ignored. That part of the programming can be ignored. However, uh, the host can still be defeated if you physically explode them, right? So I think that is uh, confirmed. In this episode, right? That like he, the, the, he Craddock um, was gravely injured, but was still crawling around and uh, but no one can come back from being exploded. Uh, and then why does uh, the man in black do what he does? Why does he do this, quote unquote, good deed? I mean, he even questions whether or not it should be called a good deed. What were your thoughts on that?
1: Um, well, there's a couple things like he looks so appraisingly at Lawrence and Lawrence earlier mentions his daughter, uh, which I don't think was just for the benefit of, um, the audience to set them up for the end of episode reveal, but also to signal to, um, to signal to the man in black that, um, Lawrence, that Ford is sort of operating through Lawrence, right? Because he never talked to Lawrence about his daughter. And so, like, it seemed I the the appraising look that Ed Harris gives him, to me read as, Oh, I see you in there, Ford. You know what I mean? Oh, I see this is a test for me, mm. and I'm going to pass the test. And that's at least what he says to uh, Ford speaking through Lawrence's daughter at the end. Um, but I think there's also just a, a seismic shift there. Uh, when when I talked to Lisa Joy about this scene, she told me that um, – because I interviewed uh, Lisa Joy for Vanity Fair, and she told me that a couple things to pay attention to in the scene. One is uh, the rain, which is um, – sort of meant to signal that everything is kind of out of control. Whereas last time he was there, the weather was temperate and everything was, and all the camera moves are really like smooth and precise the last time he was there. And this time in this rain, in the shootout, the camera is just really erratic and not, not like disorientingly so, but really erratic. And the rain splashing down is sort of just supposed to be, you know, a signal that everything's kind of out of control. And I think, William just feeling himself uh, more on par with these hosts who can actually die in a, in a way. I mean, I know you say that like they can come back and they can, but like I think if uh, if they were to shoot, if you were to shoot like Lawrence's wife, who uh, the man in black killed himself when he was there last time in Las Muras, if Craddock were to shoot her, I think she would stay down. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, like, without without on. being
0: reprogrammed, yeah.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um all of that I thought was was kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh.
0: Yeah. And I, I what's also mildly hilarious, and I feel bad for the uh the showrunners, but it is very obvious that Lawrence's daughter has grown a foot and a half, and yeah. uh, you know, her voice has changed in the like year and a half difference between when the first season was shot and when the second season was shot even Mm -hmm. though in the show time span only like what a week has passed at most right
1: right and this is this is why i've like theorized that they uh shot the child version of ford in the first episode because i was like robots and children like Child actors don't match, and this this is the same thing. Is like, yeah, she looks demonstrably older to me as well. So uh, maybe that will be the last we see of her because but, she's going to be like another foot by next season.
0: Basically, you know? you're you're advocating for killing all the ch- the children hosts in the show, right? Because yeah. otherwise, it really snaps us out of our uh, suspension of disbelief. You know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, but. Yeah, it was really curious that William shot the young Ford, because it's like, what, what was the motivation for that, other than you want to prevent young Ford from being a factor this season, which he totally would have if uh, William didn't kill him, right? So
1: Yeah, and to respond to <laughs> some people to to some people in the chat who are theorizing sort of why Craddock is hanging around the town, there's a couple things, like one, they got into the alcohol, so they were too drunk to go anywhere, they were just going to like, you know, that's, I think, kind of like the Logan approach to life. Yeah. Um, Two, that they were in a holding pattern because they they were, um, you know, players in this game really meant to be there for William to learn a lesson from. Um, and then three, something that I had forgotten that's in the text of the show, which is that William says to Craddock, like, you're looking for something. You're looking for glory. You're looking for the pearly gates, but you don't know where it is. And I do. And I can show it to you. And so, like, Craddock doesn't know where to go. Yeah, uh, only I, I, William knows. You know? I guess
0: like my my reaction to that though is that was William's offer. Was William offered to show them the way, and Craddock seemed to take him up on this offer. That's why William is you know not cowering in, in church pews at that point. So uh, I, I thought it was a little weird. That's all, um, yeah. but not a big deal. You know, he, he ends up uh, killing Craddock in a pretty spectacular way. So all good, all good.
1: Oh yeah, that's that's the last thing I'll say is that Jonathan Tucker told me that there are pieces of Craddock everywhere. <laughs> After they <laughs> exploded that, um, you know, stunt body.
0: So any a in the chat room says host killing rules seem to be similar to killing zombies. I would agree with that. Probably if you, if you destroy the head, you, you probably kill the host is my guess, especially with all their mind eggs and stuff. Um, right. so, okay. Uh, we had a plot line with Emily, Grace, Stubbs and ghost nation. um, so
1: Emily Emily slash Grace because Emily
0: slash Grace Emily slash Grace sorry uh, so Grace played by Katya Herbert she's the woman from the last episode so there was a lot of speculation last uh, in the last week that she would be the younger version of Sydney Babson or you know what's Sidza her name.
1: Sitsababit
0: Newton. S <laughs> Sitsabab Newton from season one, right? Like be the, Ter-
1: because, You could just say you could just say Teresa.
0: Teresa. Thank you. Thank sure, you, Joanna. Yeah. <laughs> um that she'd be the younger version of Teresa, particularly because yeah. she's the like they kind of have a resemblance. And um she's the only other character on the show that smokes, right? Um so a lot of people are saying, Oh, it's gotta be the younger version. Gotta be the well, younger Well, yeah,
1: version. and both are from Scandinavia both actresses are from Scandinavian right. countries. Yeah.
0: Right um but uh that's like we
1: we don't know why the man in black's daughter would have an accent if she's born of julia delos and the man in black you know <laughs> right right so there is some question i mean like there's some people unwilling to let this go like i believe grace is her not only like a sort of is it john anderson is that what they tried to call benedict cumberbatch's character in wrath of Khan? um not only is it like a misdirect for fans as to who she is this Grace name in in like her credits but also perhaps like a a code so that she you know the daughter of the guy who like owns the park basically can can go into the park and indulge herself without being recognized. Um But some people are like, oh, maybe it's a different daughter of his. Maybe he has another daughter named Grace, which is crazy, guys. Don't think that. And also my favorite thing that I saw on Reddit today was someone unwilling to let go of the Teresa theory. And they're like, maybe she's the daughter of Teresa and the Man in Black. Mm. Guys, no, it's Emily, (laughs) Juliet Dulles' daughter. William's daughter. I understand why you thought she might be connected to Teresa in some way, but she's not. And, um, you know, and this, and this, uh, shed some light perhaps on something we saw her do in the last episode where she was talking to, um, that other guest Nicholas before they had sex. And he was like, well, they would hardly, you know, send a host and, um, to pretend to be a guest in order to seduce you or something like that. And She's like, not knowingly, like meaning like the the host would not know that they were doing that. And a lot of people are like, well, does she know about Dolores? Like, does she know the whole story of her dad and Dolores and everything that happened? And mm. is that why she's like as particularly wary about, uh, you know, having sex with a with a robot? I don't know. Right. So.
0: Right. Uh. By the way, John. Harrison is the character's name in uh, oh, sorry. Star in the Darkness. Thank Norris. you. John uh, Really important fact to get <laughs> correct, Joanna, because that was definitely his name throughout the whole film. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, I, I just liked how in this uh, episode, the uh, Grace is Teresa's daughter theory was proven incorrect in like the first three seconds that we see Grace. <laughs> because they plop her down right next to Stubbs. Uh, And you know that Stubbs is a good one. Yeah, she's like in the modern timeline, right? Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, Stubbs says they'll be rescued soon, and she says, ooh, she's not looking to get out of there. She's not looking Mm -hmm. to be rescued this one. Um, Mm -hmm. Ghost Nation drags them to the middle of this uh, uh, kind of clearing with this, uh, it looks like a lake, and uh, they're taking her to the first of us. Uh, She says, and uh, Zon McLaren is back. He is the first of us, a.k.a. one of the first hosts ever made, right? Uh, And then he says, you live only as long as the last person who remembers you. Uh, And right around that time, Grace escapes as Stubbs watches as well. So she makes a getaway. And then all of a sudden, in a really cool edit, all the Ghost Nation people are gone. What did you make of this? I had no idea what was going on here. Oh, uh,
1: I Well, I watched it again because uh, we got a couple emails. I hadn't, like, noticed, you know, the way that people were messaging me, they're like, it looked like magic that they were gone. And so I was like, oh, did I miss, like, <laughs> a magic disappearing act from Ghost Nation? So I watched it again and uh, just before we recorded now. And, you know, they have someone has a knife up to Stubbs. H- his eyes are closed the camera is not focused on like the background you can just see sort of like some torches behind him or whatever you can't see the people they could have easily like slipped away in the time that he's standing there with his eyes closed i think so i don't think it's magic i think they're just light afoot foot and <laughs> yeah. and slipped away um but i thought it was i thought it was kind of cool like the things we we already, I think we already liked this Emily character. Uh, she had such a great introdu- introduction last week, and um, but I think some of the stuff she says, like to tie it back to what we were talking about in terms of the, the uh, Chinese railroad laborers overthrowing their oppressors, like you know. Stubbs was basically like, "Mm, people don't usually bother to learn the language of ghost nation. And she's like, yeah, I don't like people. (laughs) Like, She's (laughs) like, this is what interests me. Like what those white assholes who come to the park to do this other shit. I'm not here for that. I'm here for other things and other things interest me. Mm. And so like, um, I thought that was interesting, you know? And like, obviously, I mean, I'm a little surprised that Stubbs doesn't know who she is, to be honest with you, because he knows who William is. and, if, as we might presume, she's been to the park a lot, and I would presume she has been, I'm surprised that he doesn't know who she is. It, you know? Do we
0: know for a fact that he doesn't know who she is, though? Like, does he... He doesn't he, say her name, but could that, you know...
1: Uh, uh, you're right. Uh, maybe he does know who she is. There didn't seem to be any single flicker of recognition there. Right. As far as I'm He was concerned. like, oh, uh, hey,
0: it's you. You know, like, he yeah. didn't say, hey, it's you, this person I know from, from old times. You know, like, but I don't think there's anything that, like pro like that disqualifies that idea that he knew who she was and anyway
1: Stockton in the chat room says maybe she's never been to Westworld I don't think that's like she was really familiar with the Raj world uh or the Raj sort of sequence of events and Raymond Terry rightly points out in the chat that like uh you know if she's that familiar with the Bengal tiger hunt in the Raj like it's not like she's a super virtuous guest necessarily but um Another thing we should mention is that, you know, she has this map with this interlock, and we saw last episode with this interlock locking hexagonal design. I don't know if you've been like poking around on on Reddit or any sort of article that's been covering this, but it's that interlocking hexagon on her map is similar. Or did we talk about this last week? Is similar enough to uh, a logo that we've seen in everything associated with this um, Delos side project
0: well yeah and so, also it shows up very prominently on the keypad um when elsie busts into the to the room you see the interlocking hexagons
1: yeah it's similar uh, it's similar like it's on the elevator it's like it's a it's like a rudimentary version of that stylized interlocking hexagon right. uh design yeah and so like people are like okay so if she's william's daughter <laughs> Uh, and she's in the park and she's, go- and she's looking for this thing, this lab maybe, uh, or one of the labs. Like, what is she looking for? Is she looking for this copy of her granddad? Is she looking for something else? Like, what is, what is she after? You know?
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I think we're going to have to wait to find out, but, um, I, my guess is we will soon. All right. Before we move on, John Robinson, we got to thank all the people who donated, to this podcast to make sure that it existed this year. Uh, at the beginning of this year, we launched a Kickstarter and asked for your help to keep this podcast alive. Hundreds of you donated, and we are so appreciative. And, John Robinson, I think you have some people to thank, right?
1: I do. I have such wonderful people to thank, and I'm definitely ready to thank them right now. Okay. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I want to thank Michael Bolitsky, Peter Miller, Chris Zacharias, Flo von Vischer, Alan Cloak, Valentina Lauer, Samson Lee, Ian, and he said Ian like Fleming, not like Ziering. That's Ian Ziering, so it's Ian Ian Fleming. Mike <laughs> Cosentino, Ben Lloyd, Mary Bradbury, James Pengelly, Yep, Ian Zeller, uh, Evan Zeller, Chris Ferguson, Alyssa Mike, uh, Michaela Diaz. Brandon Tate, Christine Kristen Darella. Wow, I've just like lost the yeah, thread what is on how on to, on to, to what pronounce is going on here. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like Jim Della's at the end of my like <laughs> i my cognitive plateau right now. Okay. Martin <laughs> <laughs> Martin Diamond uh, Martin Davis, Glenn Diamond, Matt Campbell, Kendrick Martin, Chris Osowski. Mm. Wow.
0: Nice. Rough one, rough one, Joanna. Um, hey, all right. <laughs> Sarah Seabirds, Hugh Fotheringham, Craig Cargyle, Cargile, Cargile uh, Alan from San Jose, California, Madeline Bates, Sally Two Cats, Jasmine Wenner, Cat Like the Animal, Michael Hoops Gonzalez, Jason Frankenstein Rhodes, Jose Carlos Madrigal, June, Tom Weber, Marissa Peterson, matt.thompson.public at gmail.com, Joe Darcy... Darcy, Rebecca Vera Burgos, and Tom Boardman. Thank you so much for your donations to our Kickstarter. Uh, a lot of long-time donors, a lot of long-time supporters to us, and we are extremely grateful to them for allowing us to do what we do here on this podcast every week. Okay, Joanna, now that the perfunctory plot lines have been disposed of, let's dive Wait. into the... Oh, <laughs> yeah, go ahead.
1: Well, we should say the last thing that happens. I mean, duh, but like that... Emily's plotline ends with her writing up and being like, Hey dad. I mean, just, just to note that that's where her plotline ends yeah. yeah, and to note that she's like wearing different things. So we don't know how much time, how much time has passed since she escaped Mm. ghost nation to find her dad, but that's the whole thing. And then we should also, I mean, I also kind of want to talk, sorry, I know I should have talked about this before we said the names, but I also want to talk a little bit about ghost nation. This idea that Ghost Nation is in the park, they're not they're only hurting uh hosts, they're not hurting guests, they're like per- rescuing guests, protecting protecting guests. Uh and why would they do that? And some people are like, Oh, maybe that's their function in the park, maybe they're programmed to do that. But if that were the case, then like both Lee Sizemore and Stubbs would be sort of aware of that, right? They wouldn't be like nervous about mm. the presence they'd be like, Oh, these guys are here to help us. That's right. what they do, you know? Um and Well it's so possible I,
0: that they don't It's some rogue program that they don't know about, maybe? Like a bunch of other Ford stuff that they don't know about? But fair enough.
1: Maybe, but I prefer to think of it because, um, you know, Zon McClaren's character is the first. So, like, I think the first bots, like Angela and Dolores and Maeve, are closer to wokeness than some of the other bots, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So if he is closer to that, I, I like the idea that this is something that they've decided to do that this is what they've decided to do with their wokeness is like the uh, direct opposite of Dolores's choice, which is to like wreak vengeance. They're like protect these human lives because they're important. They've decided that they're important. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about this concept of the ghost and the machine, which is a, you know, a, a psychological philosophical notion that the, um, you can't really separate the mind identity from the body identity, which are, which is something that this episode deals a lot with. Uh, the mind is the ghost in the machine that is the body and and that they're interconnected in a way that you can't, um, disassociate. And so I don't know if that has anything to, if the ghost nation is the ghost of the machine, like sort of adhering to this idea of mind and body unity or anything like that. It's just something I'm kicking around, but, um, I like the idea
0: of it. All right, yeah. Uh, I I am kind of curious. It doesn't feel quite as though they're there to just save guests, but they haven't killed any guests yet, right? So, um,
1: Um, they seem to be rescuing them from, yeah. yeah. So not like not save them as in to squirt them out of the park, but like you know, round them up. You know, well, I but I guess
0: I, I guess um, you know, they were saying um, one of them said what like you know the first of us will decide right. And so yeah. I wonder could could that person ever decide in a different way could Could a decision go the other way? You know what i mean um that's what I guess I so, but about. i
1: guess I guess all the evidence we have so far is that um they're not hurting humans, right?
0: Yeah, no, fair enough okay uh continuing to go backwards in the storyline, Clementine drags Bernard off of the mouth of a cave um. And Bernard is in a really bad state. He discovers Elsie shackled up inside. Uh, Elsie, played by Shannon Woodward. Uh, there's empty packets of something next to her. It. it looks like barbecue sauce or, or ketchup. Uh, and I think
1: they're supposed to be her energy bars, wrappers.
0: And uh, uh, Elsie but, but it
1: would be great if Bernard just left her with barbecue sauce or ketchup.
0: <laughs> <It> reminded me, <laughs> reminded me of that episode of The Sopranos, Pine Barrens, when they're like trapped in the middle of the the forest and all they have are ketchup packets, and it's like the most valuable thing to them. Anyway, Elsie's terrified of Bernard. Um, Bernard frees her, and she grabs his gun, and um, you know, then Bernard explains, like, "Hey, uh, Ford wrote this game. We're all we're all in it." I'm just going to pause here for a second and say, I think you had an inkling that Elsie was going to be back this season, right at the beginning of the season. Um, I didn't, you know, really have an inkling. And uh, I think it's like a fairly fairly shocking reveal. Um, Bernard, the, the last we see of Elsie, Bernard is choking her out in a flashback, right? Uh, but apparently I, he, he choked her out and then just discarded her here. Um, so then, anyway. I
1: uh, oh, 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 will say this in my defense, um, which is... Yes, I knew Shannon Woodward was back this season, but that was, like, a thing that was printed in, like, Entertainment Weekly. So, like, it's not, like, some leak. Like, it was a yeah. thing that out, that was out there. Um, but I did say, if you want, the record will show, if you go back to season one, I did not think she was dead. Right. No, no, no. Um, no totally. totally. So, I think it's completely
0: yeah. legitimate. Completely legitimate yeah. prediction. Also, like just because she was cast does not necessarily mean um she's still alive. Like it could have been flashbacks, which is very possible of the yeah, show. I right?
1: guess that's true. But yeah, I just like I um and I said this in season one and I might have said this on the episode we have with Paul Shear, but like I really am firmly of the belief that if you don't see the body hit the floor, like there's a character in this episode who like still might show up again, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. But we'll we'll get yeah. there. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh so then uh Bernard like hands with his tablet and I just think this piece of acting by Jeffrey Wright, there's some really great host acting in this episode. And I think this acting by Jeffrey Wright is pretty remarkable. He, he's kind of like convulsing. Uh, we, we confirm the theory that uh, – I don't remember which one of us brought it up, probably you, but about the cortical fluid in season two, episode two, right? About like mm-hmm. what was going on with that fluid and it's like it's like some kind of cortical fluid that like helps him stay balanced and he needs more of it. But yeah, just Bernard convulsing and like barely able to speak I thought was a really effective piece of acting by Jeffrey Wright. Um, and so anyway – uh, there's really cool editing and like flash forwards and flash backwards, and we see images of uh, of blood inside the white goo and a tray of eyeballs dropping and all this stuff. And then Bernard wakes up and then like kind of regains Elsie's trust. I think there was like some really efficient storytelling going on here, where the last time Elsie has seen Bernard, the park has not melted down yet, and Bernard choked her out and left her in the middle of the for- in the middle of the desert, and uh, that takes. It, it, it takes like some amount of convincing to make me think that Elsie's not just going to kill Bernard and, and flee, right? Um, and I think that was accomplished with both Bernard's really uh, incredible or Jeffrey it's a really incredible performance, like being so pathetic and helpless, plus the fact that all this stuff has gone on and Elsie's like, I need to keep this guy alive to find out what exactly is happening. But otherwise, yeah, I, like without those things, I felt like her and Bernard's thing paired up would have been quite a stretch. Um, anyway.
1: Uh, I, I yeah, felt like ahead. it was still a little bit of a stretch, mm-hmm. like how quickly she went from, you know, this guy choked me out and left me with a bucket and <laughs> some energy bars in a cave. Right. But, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, like, I, I think the thing that I've said elsewhere, and I, I stick by it, is that, I wanna say that it's like Elsie's scientific curiosity sort of gets the better of her and she's and also the reveal that Bernard is a host
0: is like really shocking to her as well, I think. So like
1: Right, but I'm saying it wasn't I think it wasn't shocking enough. Like with when Teresa found out Bernard was a host, she was like floored and elsie's sort of rolling with it she's a different person and i think she's very scientifically curious right and so she's like you're a host no fucking way like oh my god like let's talk about this oh you're broken let me fix you because that's what i do you know and so that's the thing that um sold me on her not like just shooting him in the head and running away so
0: yeah, yeah, I, I think we, we both overall agree, like, they did a pretty good job of that. Uh, they, they did a pretty good job of solving a fairly challenging storytelling problem, right? Yeah. Which is, why wouldn't she just flee or shoot him? Um,
1: uh, someone in the chat room also pointed out that Felix was really nice when he found out about Bernard, too. And so, like, yeah, maybe these people who are used to working uh, – I mean, not maybe not Sylvester, but, like, the nice – techs or you know behaviorists who are used to working with these people versus like Teresa who's QA who like is used to thinking of these things as property and we already know that Elsie like we remember from season one when they were like sort of just bumping the aggression on May, like messing with may's behavior in a really like aggressive, you know, careless way. And Elsie was very thoughtful and careful with her. And so mm. like, this is something that she has historically felt with the hosts of a sort of compassion for, and kindness for them. So, um, yeah, but I, I still, it's, it is a bit of a reversal, but like Shannon, Shannon Woodward and Jeffrey Wright really sold me on all of it. And also like his general disorientation sells you on going along for <laughs> what the <laughs> what the human motivations are in the scene. Because, like, you're also sort of being like, where am I? What's going on? Because that's where Bernard is, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's this really brilliant, uh, I guess, shot composition or editing um, where Bernard, like, sees a past version of himself going into the thing. But it's all done in, like, one continuous shot. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I thought it was really brilliant and very disorienting. Uh, Elsie later explains like, oh, Bernard, you can remember things, but like you don't have the ability to remember what's present and what's past and so on. And, uh, you know, we heard Bernard ask the question like, is this now? Which is a question that is a meta question for people who watch the the show as well, wondering like whether this is now. Uh, So Bernard – I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, a, cl- a classic Dolores season 1 question. Um I was going to say I initially I thought it was kind of stupid <laughs> that they like move a rock and find a lab under a cave. This is the second time that they've like moved a rock and found a lab underground. Um but then someone very smart on Twitter pointed out to me that uh, if you know the Bible quite well, moving a rock and going into a cave um, is usually some sort of signal of resurrection, possibly. So you know that's very apropos for what we wind up seeing under underneath the cave there.
0: Or to be to be slightly more accurate, like uh, moving a rock and emerging from the cave, right? Um, so he's doing, I guess, the reverse of uh, of resurrection, uh, or like diving back into. Um, his pre-resurrection self, uh, as it were.
1: Okay, um, wait, no, no, like genuinely tell me, tell me if I'm wrong about this because you definitely know this better than I am. I do, but in the resurrection, isn't it that they like move the rock and find a resurrected Jesus in the cave, or does Jesus Himself move the rock from inside the cave?
0: Uh, I think it's the latter. Uh, okay. there, 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 are different um, differing ver- You know, <laughs> now, now I don't like. I, I actually think there are different versions of the resurrection depending on which gospel you read. But okay. now I'm actually, now I'm genuinely not, not sure. I got to go back and look it up now. Okay. I thought it was, the, the, like, the it's very clear imagery of, like, the stone has been rolled away. Um, but I didn't. Um,
1: uh, a minister in our chat is saying neither. Okay. And I'm going to wait for Chris in our chat to tell us what the real thing is. When he <laughs> decides he wants to.
0: Okay. All right. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Um, so let's just vamp for a little bit. Uh, while well, Chris is uh, Chris,
1: us. Chris says the rock was moved. That's passive voice, Chris, and it, like by by divine intervention, perhaps Jesus yes. appears elsewhere. One version has an angel inside. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's right. what I thought. That's what I thought. Like the rock was moved, and Jesus was already like he already was like talking to other folks at that point.
1: So they they moved the rock. People, believers, whoever, followers, move the rock. He's not in the cave
0: anymore. No. 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 They go there, and the rock is already rolled away. Oh, that's wow. what's going on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in wow. all versions, I'm pretty sure they go there. The rock is already rolled away. Sometimes there's an angel in the cave, and Jesus is gone. In all cases, Jesus is already gone. Great. Yeah. Great. So,
1: Good job, team. Okay. Nice.
0: We figured. <laughs> we put together this <laughs> uh, this story that uh, billions of people believe in. Okay. Um, so, but yeah, I, I certainly think <laughs> to go back to the original point. I certainly think there are some uh Christ parallels there.
1: Wait, so. wait. We have another possibility from Annie and now I'm going to because okay, so in season 1, I'm going to vamp on this while we talk about this. Uh in season 1, Ford has this line where he talks about the fact that they've uh, you know, cured every disease. Um, you know, progressed so far. He's talking to Bernard about this in season 1 episode 1. He goes, "Maybe even someday we'll cure death, summon Lazarus from his cave." Is something that Ford says in season one. And uh, so Annie in the chat was saying that is in Lazarus, um, Jesus had people move the rock so he could beckon Lazarus from the cave. So maybe it's a Lazarus reference. Uh,
0: Right. And actually they showed that uh, scene with Ford talking about Lazarus in the previously on, uh, on this episode. So. All right. So I think that that it actually could be –
1: and I really want this project to, like, they're they're all calling, um, everyone, like, the actors and Lisa Joy are calling this project that we find underneath this cave the Delos Project. Mm-hmm. But I really want it to eventually be called the Lazarus Project. Mm. I think that would be cooler. But we'll see.
0: You know. Wasn't there a film called the Lazarus Project? Yeah, there Ooh. was. 2008 okay. film called the Lazarus Project.
1: Never mind. Guess they <laughs> probably can't call it that. <laughs>
0: Uh, starring Paul Walker, RIP, Piper Parabo, and Terrible. Linda Cardellini. So,
1: Linda Cardellini, who I once upon time used to mistake for Shannon Woodward, and that mm. brings us back to Elsie and Bernard.
0: Yes, <laughs> nicely done. Good transition. So, uh, there is he opens up the thing, there's a logo with a 12 on it, like 12 disciples, Joanna. Okay, uh, I'm gonna stop. Uh, they're in sector twenty two though so I, th- I thought it was interesting that they said sector twenty two but they you know ha- there 's a logo of twelve They go downstairs the lab is destroyed there's been a massacre there's a human tech who's impaled to look like the Vitruvian man um, bernard 's glitching he 's trying to remember being there before the massacre like the printer was making something one of those mind eggs right I believe
1: okay, a couple things yeah. So the 12 means that it's lab number 12. And when four, when Charlotte and Bernard went underground before to a different lab, that was lab 14. Mm. So they're in sector 22, but lab 12. Um, and we can talk about Genesis twenty two twelve at the end of this episode, which we will. Um, but, um, and then, uh, some terminology stuff from, I think I mentioned this on the podcast earlier from, from, uh, someone in production who emailed us uh, and would like to remain anonymous, but he told us that the, my eggs are called chestnuts. Uh, there are red chestnuts and white chestnuts. Red chestnuts uh, are belong to human consciousness.
0: Uh, is this your way human... of saying you don't want me to call them mind eggs anymore? Uh, no, I'm just, eggs?
1: I'm just I'm just differentiating two things. I see. The uh, there's the red the red chestnuts, the white chestnuts. The red chestnuts are the developed mind uploaded. The white chestnuts belong to the hosts. Right. Inside each chestnut is a round ball. That's what we see being printed. It's a Mm. ball that goes inside the chestnut. And that ball, according to this person who works in the production design, is called the pearl. Mm. So, um, And that might be relevant to the fact that they keep talking about the pearly gates as a place that they're going. Possibly. Mm. But so we have pearls. Which look like sort of a trackball and a mouse, and uh, we've got chestnuts, which can either be red or white, depending on what they contain.
0: You know, it reminded me, uh, actually, visually, of the wooden balls from uh, Minority Minority
1: Report. Report. Yeah, yeah, because yeah.
0: <laughs> it's like this like intricate piece of uh, material, I guess, that is made in this like very futuristic lab space. Um, so, anyway. Uh, so at this point, um, they're looking at, I guess uh, they, they give Bernard some cortical fluid, right? Elsie gives Bernard cortical fluid, saves him. Mm -hmm. Uh, and look, is she looking at like some of the stuff Bernard downloaded from Abernathy last week? Like what did you know? She's
1: looking at the code that like she's founding in the lab and he was like, Oh, I've seen this. She's like, it's a completely different operating system. They don't want us messing around in this. I don't understand. It's like, like, what is this secret project? Well, you know, I've worked at, at Westworld for a while. Like what the hell is Delos doing down here? Um, and he's like, "Oh, I've seen code like that before inside Abernathy's mind, sort of protecting the IP that's in his head. So, uh, as if there was any doubt, connect this. This is drawing a line between whatever's happening in that lab and what's inside Abernathy's head. I think.
0: Got it. Got it. That makes sense. Um, but Elsie, kind of. Oh, oh, by the way, is it just me, or was Bernard's scar healed after this scene? Like, I. I thought when Elsie, like, put Bernard back together, the scar was gone. That was my perception. Did you detect that, or am I just seeing things?
1: Um, I did write a note to myself to go back and look at that scene and look about scars, because it might be confusing, because when he's, like, glitching back in time, he wouldn't have the scar, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. when he was remember visiting the lab, but I will have to go back and look. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I believe I believe you that you looked and you didn't see it,
0: but um. Yeah, my my wife and I were really closely monitoring Bernard's mm-hmm. temples <laughs> and
1: Okay.
0: <laughs> and we like I thought when she woke up, when he woke up from Elsie healing him, he didn't have the scar anymore. Uh, which I thought, "Huh, what a really weird off-screen way to resolve this fairly large visual marker, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I didn't see the scar and it was like the weird lighting or something like that." But I did not detect a scar uh, okay. after he emerged from the table. So um, if anyone – actually, no. Don't tell me because I think we'll get like 50 uh, tweets saying like there was a scar or something like that. Uh, maybe someone in the chat room can can notify us or we'll, we'll figure it out by next episode. Uh, anyway. Uh, but wanted to call that out. Okay. Joanna, why don't we? Uh, sorry, sorry to jump around, but I want to kind of conclude with this with the Bernard stuff. So let's go back to the very first scene in the episode, uh, because they're like Elsie and Bernard. They're about to they're about to break into this place uh, that has like a hidden, forbidden <laughs> secret.
1: And Bernard is doing the Willy Wonka. No, stop! Come back! Don't go in there.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and let's talk about the very first scene of this entire episode, which opens on a record player. And this incredible shot that many people, including myself, interpreted as an homage to Lost Season 2, Episode 1 and the inside of the hatch. Um, But apparently, according to your interview, that's not the case, right? Like, it's not an homage to that?
1: I was like so sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I asked and I asked Lisa Joy, and she told me that she was in college when Lost was on and that she never watched Lost. And that someone on set mentioned to her like that the record player and the exercise bike might uh, recall Desmond Hume from uh, season two, episode one, Man of Science, Man of Faith. But she says no, that is not the case in the script. Neither the record player nor the exercise bike were in the script. Those are her ideas because she wanted this, like, looping motif, also the treadmill. It was supposed to be a treadmill, not an exercise bike, but the treadmill didn't fit in the set. So she put an exercise bike in there and got all this looping um, imagery and swears it's not based on that scene. But it's crazy, the echoes of the scene. Um, But that being said... um, the By the way, so so let me,
0: let's just clear up for those oh. who have no idea what Lost is, um, or have never seen it. In at the season premiere of epi- of season two, like there was a scene that took place inside of a hatch that was extraordinarily similar to the opening scene in this this episode, right? Like that yeah. just is basically slowly through a series of close ups, you learn about like a person who's living in this extremely confined space. Right, you don't um,
1: see their face. Yeah. The way that you don't see Peter Mullen's face for like a little bit of this introduction. uh, it, But like the, the point of the two scenes are the same, I mean, I, I mean, and what's crazy is like the Desmond Hume character is played by Henry Ian Cusick, who's Scottish, like it's a Scottish fan mm. trapped in an underground hatch bunker situation, monitoring his health, blah, blah, blah. Like it's all, it's all very similar. But, um, but what we'll say is that like, if you want to show someone trapped in a confined space on a looping routine, Um, there, I guess are only a few ways to show that, like you show them having breakfast, you show them like taking a shower, you show them exercising, you show them doing whatever. Um, it is kind of crazy, these parallels, but Lisa Joyce swears it's not. And she's like, she also, she told me some things that were an homage. So like, it's not like she's, she would lie about that. So I, I genuinely think that it's a weird, weird echo of pop culture.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. Um but even even putting that aside, I do think this opening stands on its own as a piece of uh, oh, really so remarkable good. filmmaking. It starts yeah. on the close up of his record. Uh, like there's all this circular motif like your the camera goes around in a circle. It's some really challenging camera movements that are happening, right? The focus pulling that's going on there. Uh, it just felt like a really intricate camera move that actually fits in with the theme of the the scene and with the show right of, of, of this loop right everything is circular the record player the camera movement um, there 's a lot of like circular objects like this goldfish bowl you know in the shot like all this stuff um, it, it just was a really really well done scene so uh, so that 's how the episode begins, and we see a man doing mundane routine things. Uh, and then as he pours his cream into his coffee, his hand starts glitching out. Uh, and then we find out he has company, and he goes to meet it. It's young William who has brought scotch to him. Now, I'm going to stop here. Like, what was your experience of watching this scene, Joanna? Was it – did you know exactly what was happening? Like, did you know that, you know, Mullen was a robot? Like, what were your thoughts?
1: I knew Mullen was a robot. The I think the only thing that I didn't figure out right away was that this was, like, taking place underground in Westworld. Mm.
0: Did you, you know, know it when was like – because when, when uh, William hands him the note, my wife was sitting next to me. She's like, that note has the entire conversation they just had written out. Yes, um, yes. So you called that as well, I assume.
1: Yeah. Yes, uh, though your wife is very observant all the time. Um, I think only because it felt like a reference to – in season one when Maeve is sort of shown the hmm. cascading conversation that she's having on the tablet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it felt like a reference to that. Like an analog yeah.
0: version of that. Right.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the the glitch of his hand and like the fact that we've been talking all this time about putting human consciousness in a robot and stuff like that. I was like, and the way that Jimmy Simpson as young Williams sort of delivers the scene as like a guy sort of patiently humoring someone, it seemed like to me. Um, I was like, this is a test. You know this guy is in a obviously in like containment he's being tested for something uh I think he's robotic in some way because of the glitches in his hand- the tremors in his hand um so yeah, but I did like he says he's in Carlsbad, California somewhere, and I was like maybe he is in Carlsbad, California somewhere and then I think it wasn't until William leaves the room the second time that I was like, "No, this is in the park, so and I think that this is. I think it's safe to say that this is what he showed Dolores uh, when he was like you have seen such splendor like he was building this underground facility I think mm. um in season in episode 2 and when older William talks about like a place of judgment and his biggest mistake I think he's also talking about this place I, agree. I think I think this is glory the valley beyond the like the 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 the, the, the place that they're journeying towards so yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that, that sounds all right to me. And yeah, uh I am a I, I deeply respect any movie or television show that can show us basically the same thing three times with slight differences, and like every time the con the, the, the perspective that you're viewing it with and the context is like vastly different. Um yeah. another uh, movie that does this uh, in my opinion is Tony Gilroy's duplicity if you've seen that film but two characters in that film have the exact same conversation three times and every single time it's uh, in a completely different context um, I mean
1: we, you get it in memento a bit too yeah totally. um, yeah and I um I I loved this so much. Um, I had I had some trouble understanding exactly the nature of this test. Um, the first when I saw it sort of by myself in terms of like what is this testing? He says fidelity, and I didn't really understand what that meant. And I think what uh people who are a little bit more scientifically savvy have explained to me is that like this conversation between um William and Jim, um, you know, where he says shit like, you know, if you're gonna make a deal with the devil, better bring him an offering and all that sort of stuff is maybe like a conversation they had right before he died or right before whatever. And so they're testing his responses. So it's like a, it's a scripted call and response. Um, not because Jim is on some kind of loop, but to see if, um, the red chestnut in his head or the pearl in his head is able to give the same responses that the real Jim Delos did. You know, right,
0: right, which he kind of does, but not really, right? Like, his his hand's messed up or he sh- his hand is shaking, uh, his knee is but shaking. That's like, right? But
1: that's like a physical – and then he sort of, like, loses – like, he, he starts off strong and then he, like – I mean, it's better each time, obviously, because it's, like, what, I think 149 times or something like that. But, like um, – but he loses uh, his control of his speech, a couple times and it's done so well. Like Peter Mullen does that, that, that glitching so well. And then, um, and then I think both Jimmy Simpson and Ed Harris at different points in the same person's life, their reactions, which is like disappointment at, at first, like I think disappointment at a scientific project that's not advancing the way you want it to. And then like, Sort of condescending sympathy at times, and then the last one is just sort of like, yeah we're done here we're not, we're not doing this anymore. you know what i mean like that's that's what it seemed like to me, so
0: yeah, I mean, this storyline on its own could have been an extremely effective short film you know or even yeah. feature, like just that this one storyline of this dude in this in this chamber would have been really effective, um, but Joanna, i mean i can't even begin to imagine. The, direction, the acting direction given to Peter Mullen to perform that scene, I think it's the um, third time around when Ed Harris is playing William, right? Um, yeah. When he is glitching out and Ed Harris is berating him. And w- what is the direction there? Hey, b- by the way, like your, your, your body needs to be convulsing. Um, and you need to make it seem like it's against your will. So you can't look like you're actively convulsing of your own free will. And, but by the way, you need to be also trying to keep it under control and also delivering dialogue at the same time and be really angry. You know, it's just like it's, it's so mind good. blowing how many layers of performance there are in that one scene. Yeah. And I think they pull it off. And it's a testament to both Lisa Joy's skills skills director, and also the actors in the show, that how well they're able to make it work. I thought it's just yeah. phenomenal.
1: And everyone from Lisa Joy to like the people who did the prosthetics on Peter Mullen at the end. So just said that Mullen, who is like such a veteran actor, was so game to do anything like Lisa Joy said that some of the stuff like the masturbation, the peeing, the like um, and the dancing were not in the script. But she said she wanted um, Delos to be doing a bunch of stuff that you would do if you were certain you were not being observed. Right. Uh, when he was being like the the nature of his circular room is you can observe him no matter where he is in that room. Right. right. And right. so, um, you know, and so that's like what the dancing was about. I I was like, because I was asking Lisa Joy about all these. I was like, oh, is that an Ex Machina reference? She's like, no. <laughs> I was like, oh, is this an Event Horizon uh, reference? She's like, nope. I've never seen that movie. I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. So um, so yeah, the dancing. Basically,
0: was Lisa, Lisa Joy doesn't need any pop culture references. She just contains all the multitudes within her. Brain. Rain already. I think no. Take <laughs> her,
1: her big reference that she talked to me about, which was Tarkovsky's uh, Stalker, is uh, just a very like arty. Like her, her reference is very cerebral, and mm. and and that's great. But. Um, yeah, so it's not an ex muck in a dancing reference at all. Um, it's just her being like, go, Peter Mullen. She, she, she said the dailies of Peter Mullen dancing are her favorite thing she's ever seen in her life. And I just want her to release the extended cut yes. of all the takes of Peter Mullen dancing uh, in that scene. But yeah, it's so, it's like, this sequence is so compelling. And the way in which, like, even if you do figure out what's going on right at the very first interaction, the way in which they reveal, like, little bits of data. Uh, in each interaction is still just really fascinating, and um, yeah, I'm I'm just I was blown away. I loved all Agreed. Of it.
0: Agreed. And what's great is that uh, the the final reveal when William comes in and explains everything that's happening. You know, William as at Harris comes in and explains everything that's happening. Um, they could have just been like, "Hey, by the way, we're going to explain. Uh, here are the facts of what's going on." You know, and he just lays them out dispassionately. But instead, they use it as an opportunity to develop character, like mm-hmm. to, to establish William's disdain of Delos. Uh, and that's just that's awesome. Like, it's not just, hey, here's straight plot. Here's also like character work as well. Um, so I really but like we d- that.
1: Yeah. But we did get a lot of exposition too, right? He, I mean, he mentions Juliet's death, which we already knew about that his wife killed herself. And, um, he mentions that Logan has died from an overdose, which yes. is a real bummer. Uh, cause I really wanted to see old Logan, but, uh, you know, I, who presumably... would have played old
0: Logan in your opinion? Any
1: uh, on the other podcast that I do, Richard Lawson, my colleague at Vanity Fair, suggested Ian McShane. And I confess now I can't think of anyone I would prefer to have acting opposite Ed Harris than Ian McShane. But yeah. do you have any any no, uh No, I think I think Ian
0: McShane is pretty good. Alright, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to beat. Hard to beat.
1: <laughs> but um but yeah, so logan's dead juliet's dead and he talks about his daughter emily he's like she's whip smart and capable and i'm like yep we've seen her be whip smart and capable um and all of that stuff and
0: jeffrey uh, dean morgan that might also work (laughs) just gonna put that out there okay sorry (laughs)
1: okay um (laughs) not british in the wrong age but yes um so the uh but the um what William is talking about in terms of uh, like Juliet's death is this inciting incident for his fundamental change of perspective about mortality. Uh, And he's already talked about Juliet's death in season one and how much that changed his worldview after Juliet's death is when he went into the park and started um, behaving very badly. That's when he massacred uh, Maeve's daughter um, and all of that. And so my sense is This takes place either, no, I think it's after the Maeve stuff, after he's killed Maeve. So I think this interaction takes place sort of like right before William decides to go into the park and do the maze in season one. So I think this interaction takes place right before that.
0: Hmm. Right before meaning how, how long? Like a day?
1: Uh, maybe. A
0: day? I don't know, because it seems like it's a lot of... Like, we know that when Elsie activates the or opens the thing, it's the it's still the same version of Jim Delos. Uh-huh. It's, 140, it's 149 on the console. But, like, yeah. but it feels like a lot of stuff has gone down. I, I guess that Asian tech is there and his body is not in an advanced state of decomposition. Yeah. So... Yeah, and he's
1: dead. So, like, I, you know, let's say it's been
0: a week. It could be like a week. Could be. Could be a couple days, right? But you, yeah. But, but you're right. That's that what like, I'm it, saying. I think yeah. it's like
1: a week. Because yeah. Because I think it's been a week since, like, I think season one took place kind of over a week. I think. Mm. Um, and so if it's been a week, two weeks, something like that, that same tech is dead. Delos has destroyed his uh, living environment and uh, tried to carve his own face off. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: As you so. do. As you do. Like
1: you do, yeah.
0: You know, Joanna, one thing that I think we've given really short shrift to that I'm actually, like, embarrassed that we haven't brought this up yet is that this episode resolves a lot of mysteries, right? It resolves the mystery of, like, what these guys are looking for, what the glory is, like, you know, what this big side project of Delos is. Mm -hmm. But it also answers a question that many of us have wondered since the beginning of Westworld Season 1, Episode 1, which is, do hosts go to the bathroom? Uh and this is a question like many people have like asked the question, and in fact, uh, Lisa Joy told Entertainment Weekly a few weeks ago that yes they do go to the bathroom she says, quote "The hosts are basically organic it's cheaper that way to print them out they eat, they sleep, they have sex, they can poop It's really like the human body with one difference being where they you have a brain you have a brain they have a CPU end quote uh but so so that was her answer but we had never actually seen that uh truth. Until this episode of the show, right? Uh,
1: uh, game changer.
0: It, it, it is. It is. Um, so I'm just I, – I would be remiss if we did not go You know, through this episode without mentioning that um, – or with mentioning – whatever, the, you know.
1: Yeah. Du- double okay. negative.
0: Um, <laughs> mentioning that we find out that the hosts do have normal bodily functions, including presumably peeing, pooping, and masturbating. So let
1: me allow me to dramatically take the tone and the mood in the room down. Um, and and, as you do, yeah. uh, Yeah. Um, and talk about Juliet's suicide for a second. Um, We have a we've got a lot of emails and tweets about this, which is a question of whether or not the show is doing like a little bit of retconning or whether or not we're seeing something else. But it looked like in the flashes that we get from William when he's in Las Mudas, it looks like uh, Juliet has like cut her wrists in the bathtub. That's sort of the implication of the shots. Uh, But in season one, William says uh, his wife took some wrong pills and then his daughter tells him yeah it wasn't exactly an accident.
0: Yeah, so, but that, that is also in the previously on for this week's episode as well. Like they show that specific scene of William saying that. So
1: saying the pills part? Yeah,
0: saying the pills, yeah.
1: Yeah, so um
0: so what gives? Why so why say I, the pills in the flashback and then show what appears to be a slitting wrists yeah in the present day?
1: Raymond Terry who's always very smart in our chat room says like overdose and wrist cutting. Like, I guess I just don't like if she overdosed and cut her wrist, then, then William would have like no doubt that it was intentional. Right. Like (laughs) he's running, he looks like he's running up the stairs to discover her. Right. So this whole thing where he's like, she took some pills. It was an accident, but my daughter says it wasn't, um, doesn't really, like correlate to the flashback that we see, so I don't know. I it might, it might just be like a little bit of retconning, but yeah, you're right. Like, why would they then show that exact scene in the previously on? I don't know. Some people yeah. are like, oh, we're seeing someone else's suicide. Man, that would be <laughs> <so crazy laughs> not thing cool. To show, do, but not know, cool. But I just thought I'd flag it.
0: I, I, yeah, I mean, I do think it is curious, and uh, I, I think for the most part, the show is fairly intentional. And if it does do a retcon, it's explicit about it. That's yeah. that's been my experience of the show. It's like if you're gonna retcon it, you're gonna say it out loud. Like there's a wire mesh network connecting all the hosts. You know <laughs> that was never introduced, uh but now there is, and so it's like okay, but you said it, so at least it's explicit. But this just feels like not a retcon. I think I think the um the bathtub will will be revealed to have a different significance. Is my guess?
1: Maybe um, I don't know. um Okay, so uh, I, and then I and then I'm gonna bring the tone of the of the room up. Nice. And say uh, had, one of my favorite emails that we got this week was from Alan McDonald, who is uh, you might be able to guess from his name as a Scotsman, uh, and he's from.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like how you said it, dude. Like you, like changed your mind about how you're going to say it halfway through the word. Maybe <laughs> a um, Scotsman. Okay, uh, yeah, sorry.
1: And uh, he's from the same region of Scotland as as Peter Mullen, the actor, and uh, he says there's a very neat bit of writing in Mullen's first conversation with Jimmy Simpson. The phrase, quote unquote, brand new is a fairly common slang on the west coast of Scotland where both Mullen and I are from to say you're doing well as in how are you brand new pal i so that bit of dialogue is nice. very true <laughs> a tiny thing in an awesome episode but shows the attention to detail showrunners and lisa joy in particular have so yeah so like it has a fun double meaning like how are you doing brand new like is in i'm a new version of like mm. blah blah but it's also just scottish slang for i'm doing great thanks you know blah blah so i thought that was fun
0: yeah, and and I think you know you're also pointing to like the attention to detail. Like they wouldn't have just had him say, "My wife took pills to kill herself," but then show the wife slitting her wrists without having some way of accounting for that. So I think I think oh, yeah. there is going to be some some explanation for that at some point.
1: I I don't know, but maybe yeah.
0: Uh, one last thing before we get to the last scene of this episode, which is that um, <laughs> what? <laughs> good. Before we get to the last scene of this episode, which is that I. Uh, I really like this idea that the show is putting forward with this Peter Mullen stuff, which is that there's something um, about humanity that cannot be captured in code, right? Like mm-hmm. that seems to be what they're saying is like you reach a cognitive plateau. Like we try to simulate humanity, but like it doesn't quite work. It's yeah. not our, – our algorithms have not been able to figure it out quite yet. And that there's something like you cannot sum up um, in code, what the human condition is. Um, so I, I, I like that. And they, they explain it really well and they depict it really well too. So.
1: Yeah. Um, and so another thing that we should mention um, is the insane, <laughs> Way that they dispose of the delos spot every time uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is by burning this beautiful well appointed mod set to to uh, cinders uh in in burning him to the ground, and like I understand wanting to like fully destroy the thing, but to burn like you freeze him. And then take him outside the set, and then burn him. And I, I, you know, I feel like the only reason they did it that way is so that you could have like the fun hell motif at the end. Um, it, it, but, it's and,
0: it's ludicrous. I it's, mean, it just it just is like it wastes so much energy. And I, I, you know, when I saw it, I said to my wife, like, that, it just wastes so much energy to burn him. And she says, not to mention those furnishings. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I, w- I was with your wife. I was really concerned about the furnishings. Someone emailed me the, um. you know, there's like an hourglass in his, yeah. in his little cage. Beautiful. And someone, someone emailed me like that the fact that that hourglass actually cost like $12,000. <laughs> And so the person who, or tweeted at me, and the person who, like, they tweeted me the link of that exact product. And obviously, like, the production at HBO got that for free or whatever. But, like, they were like, I hope they used a stunt double for the hour class because it costs $12,000. Doesn't But uh, Peter Mullen,
0: like, grab it and throw it at one point?
1: Right? Oh, yeah, 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 it gets smashed. Um, yeah. But, um Pat Svanong, a longtime listener, a frequent emailer, the greatest, says, running some loose loose math here, there have been six James Delos versions every year, give or take. <laughs> I assume part of the delays in spinning up a new version was logistics and replacing the liver quarters from scratch every after incinerating uh, the old ones. And uh, and the last bit of ridiculousness, I will say, is that the only reason why I think old William left him alive as he walks out of there, he's like, no, let him run himself down. It'll be interesting to watch the decay is so that, you know, we can find him later. There's no reason to, like, leave him going in his cage. Uh, but uh, I, you know.
0: I Right. Feel like like, really, and how did the Asian tech die? You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. Was he. He just was like, oh, he seems to have calmed down. I'm going to go in there now. You know, like, what was up with that? Anyway.
1: Um. Yeah. So. Then we get whatever you want to talk about next.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, so uh, Elsie and Bernard find him presumably a week later, which he's done a lot of damage in that time, right?
1: A week's a long time. I I can rip apart a room real good in a week for sure. Uh,
0: Bernard saves Elsie's life by intervening before um, uh, I think uh, Jim Dallas is about to shoot her, right? Uh, With the gun that she brought in. Uh, and then they kind of have this moment where they look at each other and Lisa Joy in an interview said like they're supposed to be kind of flip sides of the same coin type deal supposed to be two halves of the same whole Um, you know like one is like trying to be a better person the other one is like embracing their demonic nature and we all have angels and demons inside of us blah 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 Um, and uh, then they leave Bernard has this flashback wait wait
1: wait I I need to to, like spend some time with this like crazy double imagery that we get this beautiful writing that we get in this scene where he's like Jim Della says stuff like we're all the way all the way down now yeah Uh, and he says this great stuff about how like you know they said there were two fathers one above one below Uh, they lied you know you were down at the bottom looking up it was just your own like the devil's reflection reflection laughing back at you there was only ever the devil it's great writing. I thought it was fucking Milton or something. Like I googled it and I was like, nope, this is just uh, Jonathan Nolan and, and uh, Gina is Gina Atwater um, have co-writing. Yeah, Gina Atwater have co-writing credits on this episode. So that's a beautiful thing that they put together. Lisa Joy once again. Lisa Joy says this is not an Event Horizon reference, but maybe her DP saw Event Horizon because like when you when you get the reveal of Jim Delos's like clawed off face and the flashes of light it's very similar to Sam Neill's reveal in Event Horizon with spoiler alert for Event Horizon I guess a scratch off face and Event Horizon has so much to do with like madness and talk of hell and the devils and stuff like that it's a genuinely terrifying film um and i i mean i think it's Crazy, like they, they had to stretch a few things to get here. First of all, they had to leave Jendendelis alive. Second of all, they had to have that whole like, we just burn the whole thing down each time in order to bring you this hell, uh, like image. But it works super well, I think. But this is the character that I'm gonna say maybe they're not gone because you know, Bernard's about to shoot him and all she's like, don't worry, I'll take care of him. And she lights the thing on fire, but man, we don't see him melt. So, I'm just saying, like, if we get, like, a half-melted Jim Delos shambling around later, um, I'm not really expecting it'll happen. I'm just saying this is, like, the Elsie choking scene of... I agree that it is
0: distinctly possible that we'll see that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, it didn't do that much for me, Joanna. Like, I agree that it is kind of cool, but it reminded me too much of Lex Luthor's speech in Batman v Superman, the Zack Snyder film that's pretty bad.
1: Here's a question for you. Why... Have you retained Lex Luthor's speech from Batman v. Superman?
0: I'm going to do my best Jesse Eisenberg impression. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> do you know what the oldest lie in America? No, that's really creepy. <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> I'll just read like, it in my own voice. That
1: was like Peter Lorre. That's it that's, that <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> He says, do you know what the oldest lie in America is, Senator? Devils don't come from the hell beneath us. They come from the sky. Or something like that. And he turns that painting upside down. You know what I'm saying?
1: Uh, I mean, I have not routine anything of Batman v Superman, so and he hangs his painting so. upside
0: down that shows the devils, right? Yeah. But it's okay. like the devils are coming but from the angels. sky. Great, yeah, because he's like because it's like Superman's a devil. DC, do, do you get uh-huh.
1: it? Uh-huh, I get it. Yeah, you get yeah. It? are you sure?
0: Because I red, don't think
1: the red capes are coming. Right? The red right? capes
0: are coming. Oh, okay, <laughs> the red capes are coming. By the way, people in the chat room are really psyched about my Jesse Eisenberg impression. I just want to point that out. So, anyway, as we move to the conclusion of the episode, uh, Bernard has this other flashback. And I just want to say, like, the flashbacks are so incredible. They're, like, the way they flash from the past to the present, it's like the exact same camera angle with Bernard's face in the exact same position. Uh, and so, yeah, in the he's light, just
1: wearing a slightly different neutral suit with a neutral shirt and a neutral tie. Yeah, um, and the camera like blinks, <laughs> and then
0: you're like in a different time period, and it's just like, whoa, that is incredible! Like, I don't even know how they did it. They probably use like some motion controlled camera to like, uh, to execute the exact same camera move in that way, is my guess. Uh, but it, it is a really powerful effect, and uh, you find out, surprise, surprise, like all these hideous. Uh, hosts with no facial features killed everyone, snapped their own necks, and then Bernard ended up executing one of the final uh, scientists. so
1: yeah, he curb stomped him great, curb great stomped.
0: times yeah
1: um and most importantly, he printed a pearl of someone else's human consciousness and uh, plunked it in his pocket and took it to go so I mean and, and something we should say is that uh, we're watching like three temporalities in the scene. There's like when Bernard was originally there and then when he and Elsie are there and then him remembering him being there with Elsie. It's, it's very Nolan to have three temporal. It was, it's basically all of Dunkirk in one room. Um, but it's, it's very disorienting, but, but the very important question is if Bernard is either telling the truth or, has all the correct information it was ford who sent him there and not someone else because we only have his word for it that that's what happened who do you dave chen think ford had printed on a brand shiny new red pearl i don't
0: know i mean okay i i will say that the one that the answer that i think it is but that i just it's a thing where like I think it's the same – does your mind ever do this thing where you, you believe this thing even though you know that it's wrong? Like you believe a theory even though you know that it can't possibly be right because it's too obvious? Sure. Um, for me, I, I think it's Ford even though I know that's probably not right because that doesn't make any sense. But for some reason, I can't get away from the idea that Ford wants to like extend his own life somehow. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense.
1: Why? Well, yeah, and I hate – Not you, but I hate that theory. Um,
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. You're welcome.
1: And I feel like I want to burn my own house down a la Jim Dulles' cage if that winds up being correct. Like if Anthony Hopkins is the reveal of all this, I'll be super mad about it. It doesn't um, make any sense.
0: It doesn't make any
1: sense. Yeah, because like Ford's whole arc in season one was about like – taking its, like, stakes have to mean any stuff, death has to matter, um, I'm gonna die, and it's gonna be, like, a big deal, and this is what's gonna happen, and, like, for that to just be JK undone really bothers me.
0: Um, Could I've be, got a uh, whole, Ar- Arnold?
1: I have a whole spread of other ideas. Arnold right. is a, Arnold is a great one, and Arnold ties into sort of what we talked about last week in terms of, that opening scene with Dolores and Arnold, which we thought was a flashback, but maybe as a flash forward. And so maybe we are seeing, um, you know, a newly formed cause he's like, maybe he's Arnold, but disoriented talking to Dolores in that very first scene of this, uh, season where it seems like she's guiding the conversation. Um, even though she's like doing her innocent farmer girl shtick and stuff like that. So maybe that's like, a, and, and that means that, you know, maybe that's Arnold that washed up on the beach. And that would, if you watch all the stuff with uh quote unquote Bernard in the current timeline, he does seem to be confused in the way that maybe like a Jim Delos would have been confused in this scenario. Right. Okay. So Arnold's one option. Um, we can revisit something we talked about last week, which was, uh, William older, young, William. Um, like, cause I feel like the reason that Ford had that pearl printed was, be- was, had something to do with, the door game that he's proposed for William. And so I'm trying to figure out like, what is the human consciousness in a host body that would most fuck with William once he got there, you know, because William is on this whole kick of like, death has to mean something. Death has to matter. That's what he says in last. He's like, death is the only true thing, like all this sort of stuff. And all these questions of immortality, he like believes in death and it's importance. And, and it's the only thing that gives life meaning. So when presented with either a host version of himself currently as he is now or a host version of his younger self, which we talked about last week, uh, that might really mess with him. Another popular theory, and one that's kind of growing on me, I have to say, since I heard about it, since a um, friend of the show, Scott Beggs, tried to convince me of it like this morning and last night, uh, is that it's Juliet. Um, we know that Juliet visited the park. We know that she like had sex in the park. So like her DNA would be in there. Um, would it really mess up William to see his dead wife? Uh, would it really mess up Emily to see her dead mother?
0: Um, how do we know she had uh, sex in the park?
1: Uh, because in season one, Logan says, you don't think my sister had her fun with right root r- like would ride some cowboys when she was here in the park. Mm. So like he, we know that Juliet has, uh, you know, left her DNA in the park before. Um, so is it Juliet? Uh, at first I didn't, one of the reasons that I don't like that theory is, um, you know, they've cast this model to play Juliet, I don't all we've seen of her acting wise so far is like one sour look at a party. I feel like if there's going to be this big dramatic sort of confrontation between William and Juliet, uh like it it would hinder it if it's maybe a model who can't do much, but maybe she just needs to like be there and not like do much, but maybe just be in a glass room or something like that and William has to make a choice about whether to destroy her or release her or something like that. Um so excuse me as I like rattle off all these ideas. The other reason I don't like that is that we don't really know Juliet as a character. And so it doesn't really mean much to us to see her. Like I said, we've seen her in a photo and in one party scene, if we get more flashbacks of Juliet as the season goes on, like maybe I'll buy more into that theory, but that's one of the reasons why I just don't think a Juliet reveal will be as much of like a mic drop as an Arnold reveal or a young William reveal. But the thing that's starting to convince me, (laughs) um, is that the season seems to be so concerned with the idea of family. Um, You know, you've got Dolores and her dad or Dolores and her father daughter relationship with Arnold. You've got uh, obviously Maeve looking for her daughter and then you've got William with his daughter, but also yes, with his dead wife. And oh my God, the Nolans love their dead wives. There are dead wives in like almost every Nolan film. Yeah. So like, that's a reason why Juliet showing up seems like thematically. uh, Why? (laughs) With their broader
0: over. Yeah, the oeuvre
1: of, <laughs> of, of the dead wife. And like, you know, remembering that if the overarching theme of season one was love and the connection of love and what that means, um, th- remembering that in the opening credits they replaced like the two hosts having sex with a mother and a child. So like really anchoring this theme of family as like the primary important relationship um, of the season and um remembering that Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan had their second child between season one and season two. I was, I was trying wow. to like think about this before we started recording. Like, uh, I don't know if you've heard Emily Blunt, and John Krasinski talk about a quiet place, but a quiet place, uh, if you guys haven't seen it, like is sort of John Krasinski and Emily Blunt working out their paternal anxiety, their anxieties about having children like in this horror film that they've made. And so like, I can really see, uh, Jonah and Lisa, Lisa Joy, like, working through some of their we're growing a family thoughts in, in season two. Um, I have another thought about this. <laughs> Sorry that I'm like sort of going off or whatever, but um, no worries. the, this, I want to go back to the uh, sector, sector 22 lab 12 uh, thing. And this is a friend of friend of the pod. Jesse Karp sort of pointed this out to me, which is that uh, in Genesis twenty two twelve. Is uh, God's test of Abraham. Um, Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac uh, in order to show his faith uh, in God. And there's this uh, website that's called like Renew.org or whatever that has this passage about it that says uh, like God always knew how the test would go. So not really about the test, right? So defenders of the classical view for knowledge usually argue that God's testings were not for his sake, but for the sake of the person being tested. God eternally foreknew whether or not the person would pass the test, but he wanted the person's character to be manifested to them. So I feel like this door challenge for William, and maybe there's a test coming for Dolores and a test coming for Maeve too, but this door challenge for William is a test that Ford, who definitely fancies himself God Ford already knows the answer and it's really to show William something about himself. And so the question I want to keep asking myself and you guys all season is like, who would that be on the other side of the door that would most test William? And Juliet might be the answer, but it might be a younger version of himself. Um, certainly, if if Arnold is the answer to this, then that has more to do with Dolores than it does with William. Um, and the very last thing I'll say <laughs> to wrap up this monologue is that um, having, re-watched, having rewatched Tarkovsky's Stalker, which I suggest all of you do, uh, that is a uh, you know a film that Lisa Joyce says is directly uh, visually <laughs> referenced in this. Um, episode when the camera goes through the wreckage of Delos's apartment. There's a lot of slow moving uh, camera work of, of decay. And she wanted the decay to look beautiful like it does in Tarkovsky's stalker. Um, but the plot of stalker is about, I like, guess post-apocalyptic world where these three men, a writer, a professor and a stalker, it's the, which is a word, another word for a guide, uh, go, enter this dangerous uh, area called the zone, And if you've seen Annihilation, you'll understand sort of why this was a direct reference to that. But they enter this area called the zone and they go, they're going through the zone to get to this place called the room. The room uh, is a place where, according to legend or whatever, your deepest, most internal wish will be granted. Um, not like if you go in, if you Dave Chen go into the room and you're like, I want world peace, the room is not going to still going to give you that. It's going to give you what you actually want in your heart of hearts. Um, and so the idea of this room, this pearly gate, this glory, this valley beyond that they're headed towards being similar to this room and stalker, which is about, once again, it's not about like the room. It's about what, what those three men want from the room uh, and what it reveals about them and who they are. Um, and actually, you know, spoiler for stalker, they never go inside the room and the room is not the point. (laughs) And, uh, yeah. So these, these are some of the, like the big things that I think this episode shows us potentially, these big things that I'm kicking around. I think I would advise everyone, uh, listening that, uh, stalker is something that they should watch someone in our chat room just said beware stalker's is really slow it's true it's like two and a half hours it's russian it is very slow and dreamlike uh, and very surreal but that's very westworld um but you know if you if you want to like dive into the deep end of the theorizing pool i think stalker is something that you might want to check out and that is my monologue
0: nicely done night. joanna so what is the theory that you're most attached to at this point the Ju- like I, it sounds like the Juliet, right? Like that's that's no, that feels pretty strong I, to me. You've converted me to the Juliet believer. Like that, that the know, mi- the I, mind egg is Juliet. I th-
1: I think I'm still back on my young William bullshit though, because like, mm, eh, Ford does say like this begins where you end and ends where you begin is something that he says at the beginning about the door. Mm-hmm. So I kind of feel like if old William like has to confront his younger self. I don't know, and there's notions of mortality. That's really alluring to me. Young William is really alluring to me. But I'm not saying we've seen the last Juliet. I don't know how many Mind Eggs have been printed total, you know, uh, or if there's capacity to do that in another lab. But I'm still on the Young William thing, unless in future episodes we start getting a lot more Juliet flashback stuff. Mm. And that and that lovely model winds up being a great actress. Then I will be, uh, you know... More convinced of
0: it. The 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 Juliet thing is really appealing because of the whole family stuff that you mentioned. That's a really it's a really strong idea. Also, um, I don't know if you noticed, but William uh, Jimmy Simpson was wearing old age makeup. It felt to me and like pretty pretty rough old age makeup. To my to my eye
1: like I, I actually didn't like I I mentioned this to you in the other episode where it shows Williams progression through time that I thought he was kind of trying to do like an Ed Harris impression yeah. a little bit and you were like, I didn't really notice that and this episode like I thought it was that he was holding his lip weird but in this episode I think they padded his upper lip a little bit and, actually. and
0: uh, underneath the eyes too it was like really yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean they definitely gave him like in his second visit they definitely gave him like a slightly receding hairline because you got to get from like Jimmy Simpson's full head of hair to Ed Harris's uh, pate but they gave him a slightly receding hairline and grayed it and sort of made it like a little bit of a jaunty comb over situation comb forward situation. Um, I don't know, it didn't look that rough to me, but um definitely you know, they were trying to smooth the the gap between Jimmy Simpson and Ed Harris on yeah this,
0: yeah, yeah. Some, yeah, all right. Overall, any other any other things you want to mention before we wrap up here? I would say uh, I thought this was a very strong episode directorially. I would say the show is still bringing up mysteries at the rate at which it's solving them. And I think that can be occasionally frustrating. Um, but there's so much strong here that I, I got to give the episode props. Oh, only thing I didn't like, Joanna, is that Ford seems to have predicted a ridiculous amount of stuff. like. He's, like, still guiding Bernard and he's guiding the Man in Black and all, all this stuff. And it's just, like, you know, it, it, it reminded me, honestly, of the Saw series where, like, you know, spoilers for Saw. But Jigsaw dies in one of the earlier Saw films. But then, like, they still have, like, multiple Saw films where Jigsaw, the killer, is still, like, issuing orders and putting people through games. Um Because he's able to predict that all these things are going to happen in the future. And it is kind of ridiculous. And I don't think this show has quite reached that level. But it is kind of like – I'm kind of like – it kind of is getting a little hokey in my opinion. But anyway.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean the way I think about like the Las Muda stuff is like – it was almost like William leveled up in a video game. Like in, in Pariah, he was told like he had to do this alone. And so all those, like, extra hosts shot themselves. Uh, But in Las Mudas, like, he gets a little army. He gets all of Lawrence's cousins to go with him. And it seems to me like he passed a test there. That, like, he failed maybe in Pariah. And, and Ford, like, Ford speaking through Lawrence's daughter as an avatar was like, congratulations, William. Like, this game is for you. So, like, which is not just a callback to what she said about the maze in season one. But also, like, it, I don't know. It just feels to me like he leveled up in, in that sequence. And so... so you had
0: all felt organic that, like... Ford not, had already set this up and
1: not you know. organic, but that there are multiple outcomes. Like mm. that William could have failed that level and he didn't. You know mm. what I mean? So it's not like Ford knew that he would do the right thing in the town. Um, it's just sort of like this is this is this is what happens next if he did that. And if he had done the other thing, something else would have happened next, sort of thing. So
0: All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Um well, those are our thoughts on season to episode four. Uh, overall, a great episode. Um, great, so, great stuff. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Uh, thanks for writing into us and uh, continuing to theorize with us and, and be very thought provoking in your emails. You can keep those emails coming into decodingwestworld at gmail.com. You can also find more episodes of this podcast at decodingwestworld.com. Joanna Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week?
1: You can find me on VanityFair.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. We will be talking – I talked about Westworld on my Vanity Fair podcast, still watching Westworld, where I have an interview with great Jonathan Tucker. Uh, but we will also be talking about Westworld on Storm of Spoilers this week. So it is a three-podcast Westworld week for me, you know.
0: Find all of my stuff at, at Dave Chensky on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash Dave Sky and also on youtube.com slash Dave Dave Tensky, I can't even pronounce my own uh, online handle. But thanks for listening to this week's episode of Decoding Westworld. We'll see you next week.